This passage shows us God speaking the universe into existence and then making the earth inhabitable for his people. It's really a, a beautiful picture of the king of all shaping his kingdom for the inhabitants of his kingdom. Wonderful, wonderful passage. However, the, the passage, as you may, might be aware, has become uh, a bit of a battleground in some ways. I don't mean among those for whom they might think it some kind of myth or fable. I mean among those who cherish God's Word and who love Jesus Christ. The, the battle, so to speak, is around good questions. Good questions like, like how old might the earth be? Do, does, for instance, Genesis teach a, a young earth, as in maybe 10,000 years old, give or take a year? Or does Genesis allow for other views, what's sometimes called an old earth view, maybe 4 billion years old, or something like that? Now, it might be helpful for you to know that your pastor elders actually have differing views on that issue. I believe two of us out of a conviction of what Scripture teaches, uh, think teaches, holds, holds to a younger earth view or a young earth view. And I believe two of us, out of a conviction of what we believe Scripture teaches, holds to an old earth view. And I'm not sure what the other guy thinks. <laughs> I've never asked. And so the way we settle this in our elders' meetings is by arm wrestling. And so far, Marshall is winning. He's the strongest of the whole group. Now, I tell you that because our position is that Christians can disagree on that issue. I think it's also helpful to say that there is no final conflict between a right understanding of Scripture and a right understanding of the world God made. God reveals himself both in general revelation in creation and in special revelation in his word. And when, when both are rightly understood, there's no final conflict between the two. And so I would, I would commend Dustin's little talk at the, uh, after this service in the conference room just to talk about the compatibility of these issues. I'm not going to get into all that. I want to ask with you, Okay, well, how then should we approach this passage? How should we approach this particular passage? Well, we should approach it like we do any other passage of Scripture, by, by following the very first rule of interpretation and asking, what was inspired author saying to first readers of the book? What did the inspired author intend for his first audience to hear, that's where meaning is located, and then we apply that meaning to our own lives. What did inspired author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, want his first audience to hear in this passage? Well, the first audience of Genesis was a people 
delivered out of slavery in Egypt, wandering a wilderness, heading toward a land God had promised them. They were a new nation, a newly formed nation with God as their king. But think about their situation. They are in the ancient world, a little less than 3,500 years ago, surrounded by so-called gods. <laughs> Uh, the sun god, the moon god, the god of the stars, the god of the sea creatures. And Israel would struggle with this. They would struggle with their allegiance and devotion to false gods or the living God. Uh, for instance, in Exodus 32, as Moses himself is busy receiving God's law, the people are busy making false gods. They take their stuff, their jewelry, they melt it down, they make a golden calf, and they say, here are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now, why the, I don't understand. In Numbers 25, some are actually indulging in devotion to a local fertility god. They are engaging sexually to celebrate this fertility god until a guy named Phineas does a kind of shish kebab on a couple of them and stops God's plague on the people. That's their situation. That's the first audience. They're a bunch of fearful nomads wandering a wilderness surrounded by other seemingly more powerful nations who claim that their gods are the right ones. So the question we really need to ask is, what would this prologue mean for them? It would mean a lot when they read verse 1. In the beginning, God, the true God created the heavens and the earth. Now, just to appreciate that verse, realize the Hubble telescope sent back to us infrared images of galaxies as far away as 12 billion light years. That's 12 billion times 6 trillion miles away. That's in verse 1. Our Milky Way, like I said last week, our Milky Way galaxy, an average-sized galaxy, has roughly a billion stars or so. And it's one of billions of galaxies in the universe. That's in verse 1. But this first audience didn't know about all that. They pre-scientific people. But they would realize the heavens and the earth was a way they would talk about saying God created everything. That's just all-inclusive. God created it all, and that means He sovereignly rules over all. So right off the bat, they would learn their king, their king is the one true sovereign of the universe. You know, just, just to appreciate this, notice if you have your Bible open, notice that God does not even mention the sun or the moon by name. His people are surrounded by other nations worshiping the sun god or the moon god. And so verse 14 just says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there be signs for the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights 
expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so... Did, did you catch that? It, he doesn't mention the sun and moon by a proper name so that he won't give the time of day to some sun god or moon god. He's saying to his people, those gods pose no threat to you, Israel. The sun and the moon, they're, they're lights that, that I made. It's a call to set our allegiance, devotion, and affection on the one true God. That, that's the main takeaway from this prologue. Ours is the sovereign king. He brooks no rivals. He has no competitors. So it is foolish to worship other gods. I think that's the effect of this passage. An effect, I think, captured wonderfully by C.S. Lewis. Would you indulge one more week of an illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> Would you allow me two weeks in a row? Two weeks in a row. Okay, thank you, Dave. Two weeks in a row from the Chronicles of Narnia? Here is the, create, the creation narrative from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The main characters here are Diggory and Polly. It's dark, and then in the darkness they hear singing. Lewis writes, there were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise Diggory had ever heard. Then. Suddenly, the blackness overhead was all at once blazing with stars. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light. If you had seen it and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves who were singing. And that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and had made them sing. Far away, down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. And all the time, the voice went on singing. The voice rose and rose till the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. As beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. Southward there were mountains. Northward there were lower hills. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything. I think that is to be the effect of the prologue of the book of Genesis. There are many aspects here that might rightfully make us excited. Many questions to ask, many good questions to ask, many important and helpful questions to ask, many things that could and should make us feel excited. But friends, we want to see the singer. We want to behold the singer himself. And as it were, forget or keep in proper perspective everything else. And so I want to notice with you 
two qualities about the singer. Two things I think original audience would have zoomed in on about their sovereign king, the singer himself. Here's the first. The sovereign king rules by his powerful words. I believe the original audience would have picked up on this reality. The sovereign king rules by his powerful word. Now notice in verse 2. Verse 2, there is a problem. We're introduced to some tension in the plot, you might say. The earth was without form and void, empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a dual problem there. The earth, our planet, is without form, sort of a picture of chaos, and void. It's, it's empty. But the singer is about to take care of that. God is present by his spirit, hovering. It, it's a, a picture of a, a mother eagle hovering over her nest, about to do some good stuff. So the spirit is hovering over the waters, about to transform that chaos and that emptiness in God's six creative days. Now there's just a ton we could look at and think about, but... I want to notice with you how days one through three correct the without form problem. Days one through three bring form out of formlessness. They bring order out of chaos. Track that with me. Verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Order out of chaos. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning. The second day, it's form where there was no form, chaos. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is uh, which is their seed, according, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning the third day. It seems to be a, a polemic, an argument against those so-called fertility gods that Israel would later devote herself to. So did you see the form emerging where there was not form previously? Light separated from darkness, sky separated from land, dry land separated from oceans, and God makes the dry land fruitful. Then, days four through six deal with the void problem, the emptiness problem of verse two. There is now fullness where there was previously emptiness. Verse 14. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be signs and for, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. And God made the two great lights, again not sun or moon, just two great lights, not even going to use their names, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. God is filling what was empty. There is fullness. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Think about the, the, uh, the oceans not far from us. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and notice, fill, fill the waters, fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So again, fullness, where there was emptiness out of God's blessing. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God fills the light with sun, moon, stars. He fills the water and skies with swarms of creatures. He fills the land with all kinds of amazing <laughs> creatures of the earth. So what was without form in verse 2 now has form. What was void or empty in verse 2 now is filled But what does this tell us about the singer? What would the first audience hear? What would they learn about him? Wouldn't they immediately notice how their king rules over his kingdom? There is a formula for each day. God speaks, let there be, and it was so. Go try this at home. Go to your backyard. Let there be an oil gusher, and I will build an oil derrick, and I will sell oil. Let there be. We speak. <laughs> it doesn't happen like this. God speaks. And it happens. What's the point? The king, this king, rules by his powerful word. Through his spirit, by his word. And notice, he rules well. He rules well. This is a very important message to his people. The other constant refrain in this passage is, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Finally, the artist steps back from his masterpiece in verse 31 and says, it's all very good. 
Friends, he rules by his powerful, powerful word, and he rules very well. That is to be a comfort for us, particularly of what happens next. He makes us in his image. And that's so important, we're going to dedicate all of next week to that. That's a huge truth. He makes mankind in his image. He makes people who hear and understand this word. This is very unique. Verse 28. And God blessed them, his people that he created. And he said to them, that's different. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now, did you notice, God speaks to us with his word, his powerful word to, notice, really define our purpose, to define our reality in which he wants us to live and how he wants us to obey him. Think about what this would mean for that first audience wandering the wilderness. They were receiving their sovereign king's word in written form. In fact, the ten times God speaks here may perhaps echo something of the ten commandments they either had just received or were about to receive. Possible, we don't know for sure. Israel may have or just may be about to receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. They were about to or perhaps had just received their sovereign king's word in written form. Wouldn't they learn from this prologue the vital importance of trusting this word and obeying this word? He speaks Creation obeys. He speaks to us. What should we do? We should obey him. He's the creator. Sung's, um, Sung's brother-in-law is, I guess you would call him uh, an elite chef. I don't know the correct terminology. Uh, his name is Brian. Brian has been a chef he, uh, in L.A. for Wolfgang Puck. He's been a chef, a head chef in very nice restaurants in Manhattan. He's at his own restaurant in Manhattan. A few years ago, he was the head chef of a very nice restaurant up in Napa Valley. And so we visited Sung's sister and brother-in-law up in Napa, and Brian took us to his restaurant. And I had the privilege of sitting next to Brian at the table where we all were. Brian is the head chef, so everyone is just paying deference to him how are things, Jeff? How are things, Jeff? When it comes time to order, I said to Brian, what should I order? Because Brian's like the creator of the menu. Brian's in charge of this menu. Brian's like created these dishes. This is his deal. Brian, what should I order? Brian said to me, order the acorn-fed pork from Spain. I said, I'll have the chicken fingers. <laughs> no, I didn't. What do you think I did? I just had a word from the creator of the menu. Order the acorn-fed pork from Spain. 
What do you think I did? I trusted his word. I obeyed his word. Why? Because I believe he knows what he's talking about. He created this thing. And it was delicious. It was, it didn't even taste like pork. It was like the filet mignon of pork. But what's the point? When you have the creator of the universe giving you his word, how should you relate to it? You should say, I think he knows what he's talking about. And I will trust and obey his word. Oh, friends, this is a vital lesson for those who live in the king's kingdom. Let me ask you, where are you right now needing to trust the word of your sovereign king? Where is that for you? Where, where do you need to just take him at his word and say, I, Lord, I, I believe you know what you're talking about. Where do you need Where do you need his word defining reality for you? It seems to be almost what he was doing for his first humans Adam and Eve. Let me just define reality and define your purpose. Where do you need your king's word defining reality for you right now? Here's what I mean. Maybe Maybe there's just some uncertainty you're facing. And you need God's word to interpret that and help you walk through that. Maybe, maybe it's uncertainty with your job or your finances. Or some uncertainty with your kids or your family or your future. Just from our vantage point, the future. So uncertain. Maybe with your health. You're walking through a health trial. You don't know how things will go. You know trials will come, but you need help understanding this. Well, your sovereign king has spoken words to you to define reality for you. You must cling to them. It might be a verse. Here's one example. It might be a verse like Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. That, that's a reality-defining word from your king. That's, that's, that's a shape us, doesn't it? I don't see this. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out, God. But I'm going to rely on you because I believe you know what you're talking about. I'm going to trust that somehow you're going to work this hard, hard stuff that I don't like for my good. So I'm going to submit to you, trust you, follow you. We hope in, we trust in the sovereign good word of our king. That's what it looks like in his kingdom. But to what end? What, what is the singer? What is the singer going to do? Where is he taking all of this? And secondly, let's see here secondly that the sovereign king brings us into his perfect rest. The sovereign king of the universe brings us into his perfect rest. Now the chapter divisions were added later on. 
the beginning of chapter 2 is really the, the resolution of chapter 1. Remember, the problem in chapter 1 is introduced in verse 2. Earth is chaotic and empty, void. The solution is God speaks, he orders, he fills by his powerful word. Now the outcome, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set it apart. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's interesting here, there's no, there's no uh, pattern like we saw earlier, continuing of evening and, and morning. This seventh day doesn't have a recorded end per se. It sort of keeps on going, it, it seems to be the implication. It's just rest. It's a perfect Sabbath rest. That doesn't mean God is not still working in ways. He's sustaining all things right now. But this is God's Sabbath, his, his celebration of his completed creative work. He's celebrating his accomplishment, and rightfully so. It's a picture of God's kingdom, God's people, now in God's place under his rule. But we know, don't we, don't we that human rebellion marred this original good kingdom plunged us into ruin. The first readers knew that. The first audience knew that. They were like us, living after the fall of mankind into sin. So what would this Sabbath rest mean for them? Well, certainly it's important backstory. Again, for the law they are receiving, which included God's Sabbath set apart, the seventh day for worship, etc. So that was certainly a big part of the backstory for them. But I think, I think it may be a hint also of what was to come. A hint of hope of what's to come. And I say that with confidence because we know, we know what God has done to restore his kingdom. Jesus himself came proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Why? Because he's the king come to restore the kingdom on the earth. In fact, the apostle John intentionally echoes Genesis 1, doesn't he? The apostle John begins his gospel saying, in the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning, sounds like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was God and the word what, and the word the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with, He was in the beginning with God. You hear the echo, don't you, of Genesis 1, verse 1. And then verse 14, John says, amazingly, and the Word became flesh. So here's our sovereign King coming in the flesh. And He's a King who rules by His powerful Word. He's a King who rules by his word. I was thinking of the incident in Jesus' earthly ministry when a Roman centurion, a Roman army officer, came to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. But the guy says something very interesting. He said, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Everybody else says, come over, Jesus, please. Please come over. Love to have you. This guy says, I'm not worthy to have you walk in my front door. Just 
say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. What does Jesus say? I can't do that. No, he says, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. I say the word. The guy's healed. In fact, I love how Hebrews 1 seems to echo Genesis 1 as well. When it says of Jesus Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's saying he carries the universe moment by moment, keeping it all into existence by the word of his power. He's your sovereign king, come in the flesh, ruling by his powerful word. And here's my point. He's the king who brings you into his rest. The New Testament talks about this Sabbath rest of Genesis 2 as a rest you can enter into as a believer in Jesus Christ. It is God's perfect, eternal, heavenly rest for all who believe, as Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, another echo. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's the Sabbath rest we're heading towards. When this entire creation is renewed, restored, and transformed. Until then, until then, we're like that first audience. We are traveling the wilderness of this world going through trials, going through difficulties. Maybe you are right now. Hardships. But friend, the message to you today is your king will bring you to his rest. We sing the great hymn, Amazing Grace. It has this stanza. Through many dangers, toils and snares. I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will do what? Grace will lead me home. Grace, the grace of your sovereign king who took on flesh to live a perfect life for you, to stand in your place, to receive God's wrath against our sin, to take away our shame by taking it on himself, his grace will lead you home to that rest. So, what do you do? Today, friend, rest in that completed work. Friend, today, rest in that finished work. Rest, rest in that redeeming accomplishment for all who believe. Think about Jesus' words when he said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down. I will give you what? I will give you rest. And he says, you will find rest for your soul. That's the Sabbath rest for the people of God. You can taste today until grace leads you home. If you're here this morning and maybe you've not tasted that rest yet, I want to urge you to consider what this king holds out to you. Maybe you're trying to 
be good enough, trying to put on a, a religious veneer, when God sees our hearts, how will you take away your shame before this king? What will you do? You need his finished work to bring you rest. And so I urge you even today to turn to him, to come to him, to hear his invitation to you very personally. Come to me, fill in the blank, your name. Come to me, find rest for your soul. This king will meet you, save you, and make you his own. Maybe you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you know, to be honest, maybe you've forgotten this rest. You've forgotten that grace will lead you home. You find yourself burdened, weighed down, discouraged. You find yourself wondering if you're going to make it to that final rest. You find yourself very much aware this morning of your failures this week or your failures even this morning than you are of your sovereign king's finished work. I think you too would want to hear his invitation again. Come to me. Come to me as you are. Come to me. I am gentle, he says. I am humble at heart. Find rest for your soul. Friend, rest in his finished work for you. Are you seeing the singer yet? Are you seeing that he's the sovereign king of the universe who rules by his powerful word to bring you and me into his perfect rest? Let's pray to that end before we take the Lord's Supper together. I just want to pray for any who are burdened at soul, weighed down, feeling like they can't go on, or maybe those who have yet to come to this king for his rest. So if you would, perhaps close your eyes for the purpose of concentration. And hear King Jesus' invitation to you right now, saying, come to me. Come as you are. Come in your weakness. Come in your frailty. Come with your burdened soul and rest in my finished We thank you that you are the sovereign king of the universe. We pray you would rule over our lives more and more by your powerful, powerful word. We pray you would secure to our hearts your promise, your sure promise to bring us into that eternal Sabbath celebration. Until then, we come to you again. We have no hope but your life, your death, and your resurrection. So seal 
your promises to our hearts as we take your supper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers can come as they bring the bread and the cup. If you're here this morning, if you've not yet believed on Jesus Christ, just please pass the trays down the aisle. No one's gonna judge you about that, but please, please, please consider Jesus Christ's invitation to you right now to come to him, turning from going your own way and turning and trusting in him. If you're taking the Lord's Supper, please take the bread, take the cup, hang on to both. We'll take them together. Be intentional as you hang on to both to hope in the rest your king has purchased.